This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell, and I'm joined in the studio today by the one, the only music director <laughs> of the Toledo Symphony Orchestra. That is Elaine Trudell. Hey, Elaine, how are you? Very well. Hello, Brad. Hello, everybody. Yeah, it's a one-on-was, one-on-one today. And you know what that means, because I do have a quiz. I know I'm going to win the quiz. I'm alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to see if Maybe. you get, you know, if you get at least fifty percent of the answers correct. Oh, no. okay. Then, then you will officially win the quiz. We're going to talk today about uh, three different pieces of repertoire. This is an advance of the great violinist Midori, mm-hmm. who is coming to play with Toledo Symphony. One of the really uh, gems of the concert season that's happening in yes. Toledo, because she's a world class musician has been such for many many years yeah. right one of the few musicians that uses just one name right that, that we can know her by so the uh the title of it is midori plays mendelssohn she's going to bring that wonderful violin concerto by felix mendelssohn to the stage of the peristyle it's happening saturday february 18th at eight o'clock p.m and Elaine, you are conducting. There's also the Symphony Number no. Seven by Antonin Dvorak, as well as the Overture from the Opera der Freischütz or the Free Shooter <laughs> by Carl Maria von Weber, along with that violin concerto. It's a really wonderful program. So we're going to do like an in-depth discussion about okay. these works. Okay. Okay. And now. Let's begin with Midori herself, okay. because the quiz is about Midori. We won't do the quiz right away. Let's talk okay. about the Mendelssohn piece. I'm, I'm going to turn the mic over to you for a, a quick second. I got some music queued up here, so you tell me what to do. <laughs> okay, I shall. Okay, well, well, thanks for giving me this time. It's wonderful. Um, the the well, uh, just for a second, the program as a whole is uh, is really an idea of the great Germanic uh, music, great Germanic repertoire. Yeah. And you know, we think often of symphony orchestra as symphony orchestra that that the. The core of what we play, but in Toledo we have a very eclectic taste, right? So yeah. it's not necessarily the core of what we play. And actually, it's it's kind of rare that we play a, just a Germanic program. The full like the the only one we did before that this year was the Beethoven Schubert, right? Yeah. And it's uh, and that program is not only not Germanic, it's Viennese also, right? And so Sch- Schubert would have been thrilled, yeah. by the way, to be on a program <laughs> with Beethoven. I think so. Yeah, but the the whole idea behind it, and it was uh, we also had a piano concert by uh, Jesse Montgomery on that program. Yeah, so right. there you go. That It's a, our usual eclectic mix. Yeah. But I thought for this one, do something really special and have three very important works for different reasons. They're important for different reasons uh, of the Germanic repertoire. So yeah, we'll talk about the, the Violin Concerto. Um, what's really interesting about this? Well, first of all, Mendelssohn, as we all know, was a wunderkind uh, of composition. Yeah. And uh, he wrote, uh, like, the overture to uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. He was 14. He wrote a bunch of uh, string symphonies when he was much younger than that. Actually, some people say that he's probably the most interesting wunderkind composer uh, that there was. I mean, we yeah. talk about Mozart a lot, but I, Mozart was, of course, it's Mozart. What can you say, right? <laughs> but Mendelssohn, this kind of invention and this kind of counterpoint, and uh, yeah. and he came many, many, you know, decades after. So there was a lot of music already written. So, you know, not to copy anybody and to have that coming out of you, that's, that's that, a pretty that's big pretty thing. That's pretty amazing. Well, the, those string symphonies that he wrote, I think he was like 12 when he yeah. was writing those. 
Um, I play them all the time on the radio because it's it's great music. Yeah, I they're like wonderful. To to that. Yeah. What, what's interesting with Mendelssohn is that it's it's difficult to see what's the you know when when is maturity because you know Midsummer Times Dream Overture. That sounds like a work of great maturity, but it's yeah. uh, he was fourteen. <laughs> it's like, uh, and the octet, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, that's also as a teenager. So it's incredible. So he, what Mendelssohn did also, like Haydn, he was somebody who organized things as well. So it's very important in, in our history to have people who write music, yes, but people who make sure that the, this music is played for people who can organize, like movers and shakers of the of the Romantic era. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yes. Mendelssohn, well, the early Romantic era. So um, Mendelssohn was such a person. He was uh, amazing. He's, uh, he was a conductor. They, they formed a Gewandhaus orchestra which sounds yeah. very fancy but it's basically uh what is it the 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 union of the tailors that uh, come together <laughs> and they sponsor an orchestra it's yeah. not as sexy in english right <laughs> yeah so but it's still going today i mean that's uh, that's one of the great orchestras it's one of my favorite orchestras in the world i love nobody has their sound yeah i mean it's it's uh dark and transparent at the same time i mean it's if you have a chance to uh, anybody who's listening to listen to the gavanthaus orchestra it's, hey, i play it on the radio quite often well there so, you go yeah. well if you have a chance it's going to be here because it's the most <laughs> interesting programming in this at joe wgte right so yeah. that this is a place to listen to it but this is yeah, anyway so the tradition started with him right so in uh, i'm going to get throw a few dates in there <laughs> in 1835 because people think it's very far from beethoven and all that but you know it's not even the decade after beethoven there yeah so beethoven uh, died in, in 1827. Yeah, yeah, so it's like just a few years after. So he's named as, uh, he wasn't, he started way before that, but he was named the conductor, the, that conductor of that, but the, almost in um, in a way of what a music director is now, you know, like going, um, yeah. that making music, right, except the music director usually don't, they don't write the music as well, but the programming music, actually Mendelssohn is the person who rediscovered Bach and yeah. and and made it so that people could hear his music. So now it's just normal to have Bach in our repertoire of what we're listening and what people know. And we just mentioned Bach to anybody who doesn't even do music who's not playing. They know Bach, but back then it was a big discovery that yeah. he decided to push. He could have very well not pushed for it because it was not that popular because it was a little bit austere, you know, at that time. But uh, he really pushed for it. So very genuine musician. Very uh, at the same time. He was uh, a craftsman, but he was also uh, a salesman, you know? <laughs> and that's, no, but that's what we are. I mean, yeah. you know, basically music director, you have to be a crafts, you know, craftsman, castwoman. When you're with the orchestra, when you, you carve together the, the sound that you're going to make, the performance, the style, the, the history, the culture of your organization. But then you have to go and sell that organization. Yeah. And just So is Mendelssohn like a model for you or a role model for you as a conductor? Uh, I, I don't know as a conductor. Of course, we've never seen him, right? But <laughs> but uh, but things he did, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a few of them. Haydn is one. Haydn's a big one because he had to do so much diplomacy, you know? Right. Because in the classical era, you had to please many masters, right? Yeah. But in the romantic era, it's a little bit more affirmation of self, you know, man's against man, man's against nature, that kind of thing. And, and that's a little, I would say, I wouldn't say easier because, you know, you would have to be more like a freelance, you know, and find your, your sources of revenue. And, uh, in the classical era, you were more at the employment of uh, some nobility. And then it was in the culture to have pieces written, but at the same time, there's like a golden shackles a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Mendelssohn uh, is the music director of the 
the the Gewandhaus Leipzig in 1835. He hires one of his very best friends to be the concertmaster. So it's very important, right? So if you make a relationship, uh, not to be, uh, you know, uh, not a relationship, but uh, an example, uh, like it's like the conductor is like the coach and the concertmaster is the, like the captain of the team because yeah. the, the, the conductor is not actually playing, but you need to have, to have somebody in the players that, that can translate what you're thinking very often. Right. I mean, you, you express what you're thinking, but there needs somebody who's actually, you know, I, I would say on the ice because I'm Canadian, but I mean on the field, <laughs> on stage <laughs> with the other colleagues saying, well, that's what he really means. <laughs> but it's interesting though, like if for anybody who has ever seen a rehearsal with the orchestra and the conductor, and I've seen this at Toledo Symphony mm-hmm. a few times, in rehearsals, often the concertmaster, the first violinist, will turn around and give a direction to yep. the rest of the violinists, you know, instead of the conductor himself. But so there is this kind of a simpatico relationship between. Well, you have to uh, either you have it right away, you know, or either you develop it. But it's very you must have it at some point. I mean, early yeah. on in the association, because you must speak of one voice you think of one mind you know of uh, uh, what is the style and what is the culture of the orchestra mm-hmm. I say culture often because that's what it is really is how we do things and culture is how we are in our uh, community of players and how we do things and how we hear music and how we want to 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 share it with the uh, with the audience. So anyway, Mendelssohn gets his really best really best friend Ferdinand David, and I'm saying that name because he he gets him you know to be the concertmaster of the orchestra. One of the things he told him is that I'm gonna write you a concerto, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you could do the same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I ain't no Mendelssohn. So, <laughs> but uh, so what happens is. Uh, is that, you know, a life gets in the way, right? He has to yeah. do this, he has to do that, he has to attend, he has to make the orchestra work. So by by the time he actually gets to do it, it's like nine years later. <laughs> so I didn't say when, I just said I would write it for you. Exactly. There's actually a parallel to my instrument, the trombone, uh-huh. because Mendelssohn also promised when he... Mendelssohn had very, some very special musicians in his Gewandhaus Orchestra. His principal, Viola, was also a fabulous trombone player. Really, and he had I know, and that it's not a viola job. We had promised his principal viola to write him a trombone concerto. <laughs> <laughs> There's a joke in there somewhere. I know, I know. We have to think about that. And I'm sorry to all violas. I mean, I love the viola. It's one of my favorite instruments. But yeah, I like trombone too, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, and and but but that was near the end of his life, which of course we all know was in his 30s, very young, and uh, and he passed away. And Ferdinand David wrote the concerto. For the trombone. Uh, oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and that's like the, the number one concerto of our reper- uh, romantic repertoire. Yeah, um, and uh, you've played it, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, many times, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's yeah, it's not Mendelssohn, but still, I mean, what a change it would have been for trombone players if they had a, a concerto by Mendelssohn. <laughs> Whoa, you know? Anyway, so coming back to the violin concerto, he, he had the, you know, like most composers, they have the idea right away. I remember when Jacques Itzou wrote a concerto for me, the first day he told me we were at dinner in a restaurant and he wrote on the napkin the opening two measures. And mm. he saw this, I, you know, do you know how much I regret not keeping that napkin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever. So, so Mendelssohn already had the beginning and it's, it haunted him for a long time, but he could never get to it. So finally he got to it and then he became sick. <laughs> 
and no, we couldn't no. conduct the premiere. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but it's okay. It's not like you know. We uh, we can laugh about it now. Oh but no no. Back but then it was no, no, a no, serious no, thing. Yeah, but he, no no but he didn't die. I mean, he got sick and then he came back the season <laughs> okay. after they did it again and he was conducting it. So yeah, no, I wouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> so yeah, so he wrote that. But the, one of the reasons also that he didn't write it right away. Is that and it's very rare for the Wunderkid kind of well not a kid anymore but like a genius like that and that's another relation with some somebody else on the program is that he had a moment of the how do you say in English um, the blank page or the a blank slate yeah well you know when uh, when you're um, like a, a tabula rasa no 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 if you're writing like a, a novel and then you there's no more inspiration the page is white in front of you and you can't. Oh, uh, writer's block. Yeah, okay, so yeah, the okay, bit of writer's block. For all you French-speaking <laughs> folks, in the, how do you say it in French? La page blanche, the syndrome of... Oh, the, the, the white page, page. yeah. Because yeah. it's a, like, it stays there and it's... Ah, you know. I like that better. Are you, you, it's funny because I like writer's block. It's like <laughs> you're blocked and it's exactly what happens, Okay, right? we'll trade. I'll speak in French <laughs> for the rest of the podcast. You go okay, ahead. Okay. Anyway. Donc, Mendelssohn... Uh, oh, no. <laughs> you're in English, I'm in French. So well, then, or I can translate. Then Mendelssohn. Uh, no. <laughs> so Mendelssohn was, you know, he was on a roll. I mean, you know, he started that job. Then uh, right after, I mean, this is the Opus sixty four. So it's uh, it's not one of the early ones. And as we all know, Mendelssohn died young, right? Uh, yeah, 37, 38. thirty seven, thirty. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and. Um, he was he was on a roll before that. I mean, the Opus sixty one is Midsummer Night's Dream. The entire incidental music, uh, the songs without word is Opus sixty two. So every everything was going well. He was trying to write his third symphony at the same time, which is the Scottish symphony. Yeah, and he totally got blocked. <laughs> and he yeah. was like, oh. and and then he went back to his violin concerto, and he said, "Well, I'm st- I have to finish the symphony." So that's why it took him a little bit of time. Yeah, but finally, when he did it, it became instantly. The Violin Concerto. And it is still, to to this day, one of the top five violin concerto in oh, the easily. history. Easily. Yeah. Top five, top three, maybe, you know. Tchaikovsky, yes. But, the, you know, Mendelssohn is like, uh, it, it, it's the it's how you measure uh, the, the, the greatness of a violinist very often. So, of course, having me, Dory, come, come and play with us, I, you know, I, I asked, do you think we can do Mendelssohn? And mm-hmm. there's a special thing to that for me because I heard her the first time I don't know, maybe she was 10 <laughs> in Montreal <laughs> with the symphony. I know she was, like, I'm not even joking. She was super, super young yeah. with the little yellow dress. She looked like a doll going on stage, and she played Mendelssohn. Yeah. And it was like, I couldn't believe. And I was like, it's interesting. It's like, okay, this is mature. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, how do you do this? I mean, She's I, kind of a parallel in, in a sense exactly. to the young Mendelssohn. Yeah, and that's well. why I was thinking of that piece with her, you know, like uh, – very often, music director were also a casting agency. <laughs> we say, yeah. This piece goes very well with this person in that stage. and that. So anyway, so for me, I, I think she plays one of the best Mendelssohn's ever. So I was so excited when she accepted to play that concerto. Very meaningful, very meaningful in the history. And you know what's really interesting about the concerto is that it's the way it starts. Because uh-huh. until then, you would have, you know, always an introduction. Of course, Beethoven concerto being the 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 longest example possible it's like three minutes of orchestra before the, the violin comes in but let's listen to the beginning of the Mendelssohn concerto let's try to see how many minutes before the violin comes in yes I finally get to hit a, a <laughs> button on my soundboard here alright this is the opening of the violin concerto and there it is okay <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, the violin just comes in right away. I know. The orchestra just sets the tempo and has like the little ostinato going on. But it's all there. Look. There you go. It's It's an amazing melody. And, you know, you usually reserve words like this for somebody like Mozart where you say it just sounds like it already existed before it was even written. You know, it's so perfect. Yeah. And I think that the playing has a lot to do with it, the violinist, the tone of their violin, yeah. and the legato that they bring to that opening melody. Yeah. You know instantly, you, you know, the worth of the violinist as soon as they start playing yeah. that particular piece. It's really hard for them. Yeah. And it's really hard for them. I mean, because, I mean, you don't, have, you don't have anything to warm up to get into it. It doesn't start with a little cadenza. Yeah. It, the purity of what it is. But at the same time, it's not purity in the sense of Mozart, right? It's, uh, and, and you have to set, like you said, the tone, the emotion. Where are we going to be emotionally when we listen to this right away from the beginning to the end? Because another feature of the concerto is that all those moments are linked together. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. There's a lot that goes into it, obviously. You know, there are a lot of different YouTube clips of various conductors and various violinists online that you can find doing that concerto. And what's really interesting is to watch their preparation in the moments before the baton comes mm. down and to see how some folks just launch right into it without, you know, without a lot of preparation, how others want a long moment of silence and they get in the mood, and then they start. I'm talking about the conductors, yes, not necessarily the violinists. Which one of those are you? Uh, well, I'm. Um, I like to. I like to take a good breath. Mm-hmm. It's not very long before I start, but you know, I like to. I like the orchestra to take a breath. Uh-huh. Now, I say that to string players all the time because you know they can. I mean, everybody needs to breathe, right? Yeah. But they can actually play their instrument very well without with with having very bad breathing, right? Mm. They cannot play as well as it, they 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 can if they don't breathe well. But they, you know, it's not like an oboe or a trumpet. I mean, you need to take a breath, and yeah. and singers, of course, that's the the, <laughs> the supreme example. But I always take the example of the singers, right? Because first of all, we never know when you guys are breathing. It's not like, oh, okay, go, right? <laughs> well, for some singers, it is. No, I know, but you, you, want, you look at an opera, you know, you're, you're watching an opera, and you don't see people going, okay, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so it shouldn't show, right? So I, I used to teach all that all of my time, uh, all the time to my students to say, listen, I mean, you know, opera singers, they do lines, that the endless lines, and they, it doesn't even show that they're breathing. So you have to, you have to breathe in the same way. And that's why I took, I took two years of uh, vocal coaching when I was uh-huh. a student. Yeah, well, you don't want to hear the result. But uh, <laughs> we hear something. it every week here on Symphony Lab. <laughs> At least you're breathing, oh, yeah, <laughs> not your singing. That part, the the end, I do pretty well. <laughs> so, um, so I I think for for me, what's really important and what creates the sound is that we all breathe together. And the exhaling isn't mm-hmm. like, for example, if you're exhaling like a Shostakovich concerto, right? But if you go, you know. Yeah. And everybody has to be on the same page, exactly. But the same page blanc, as no, no, were. no. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 if you breathe together, you play together, yeah. right? I know it sounds simplistic, but it's not. Well, it's coordination. Uh, yeah. and, and when you're talking about you know a 60, 70, whatever yeah. piece orchestra, that that is a major challenge, I think. The two beginnings that are like that. This is the, the epitome, but the other one's the beginning of Sibelius. 
because it's all yeah. diddle, 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 diddle. And that's kind of a really the diddling of the sextuple and all that. But this one is challenging. You have to find no accents at the beginning. That's another thing. If you breathe and you breathe with the bow, that's one thing we do. It's like you breathe like the, the bow does the same movement as the breathing and then it comes down. Breathing, yeah. It's called breathing with the bow, right? So you breathe with the bow and then it makes that. Otherwise, if you have some people just starting right away, from the front, it's going to make a little accent. And that's the difficult thing. You don't want to go like, well, it's already ruined from the first note, right? <laughs> well, what you could do is just ask the orchestra to play the first couple of bars as an uh, as a, like a an ostinato vamp while the violinist gets ready, and then well, you just keep playing that over and over. Oh yeah, and then you cut for it when it sounds. Yeah. Good. No, but that's sometimes you see conductors that go like very a vague gesture at the beginning mm. that sounds, seems confusing for everybody and it is confusing but they're trying to have this sound that doesn't have an accent but yeah. if you can try to like breathe and just let it out slowly and relax you know yeah. it's very zen kind of beginning but you need to have a good beat as well well so you've had <laughs> you've had five years you've been working with toledo symphony oh, yeah. so you know there there is kind of a give and take you oh, yeah. you know each other yeah. but now you're adding to the mix one of the great violinists of our age right yeah. midori who has played this concerto many times mm -hmm. in the past you were talking about having heard her play it when yeah. she was very young um how do you preserve your uh your way of making this music when a great big soloist like this comes in and is performing the violin concerto she's the star obviously mm -hmm. of the show yeah. i mean are you more accommodating or is there a way that you can sort of put the toledo sound mix that with what midori is doing i mean what is the the aesthetic that you're following there well i'm going to propose to you another way to look at it um, well, uh, well, when you say Toledo sounds, is, is the sound that we make in different repertoires. So mm. the sound that we make is always based on the composer and the, the ideas that we meet at the request, the request of the composer as best as we think we can, right? Yeah. Because the composer is not there, but you know, with the, the education, everybody and uh, the schooling and all the, it's, you know, it's not a guess. It's always like a very educated kind of way of, yeah. there's uh, a lot it. of baggage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the years of doing it and the traditions and, you know, so that the, I'm, I'm always very confident about that, you know, that we're going to go in the right style. Now, the idea of, um, having one and the other, the interpretation of both, I think it's not a question of a parallel thinking. It's about us looking at the music of Mendelssohn mm. and trying to to serve that music and to translate. You know, very often we say we're interpreters, like we interpret yeah. the music, to interpret the music. Well, if you take the word of an interpreter, like an uh, interpreter from a language, like, you know, from Japanese to English, I mean, uh, if you don't speak uh, a certain language, somebody is translating it to you. So and the interpreter in the sense of translating. So if for us, our job is really to translate what's on the page in the style of the composer to the public. So of course, there might be some differences here and there, but the idea is that, if you have, like, she's an amazing musician, but she's thought about this all her life also. You know, you put yourself, you try to have, to put yourself in the place of Mendelssohn and the, the, the style of the, the time and the way he writes. And so we're all trying to do like Mendelssohn. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not trying to do like Midori. She's not trying to do like a, we're, we're all trying to aim at the, the genius who composed that piece. He's at the top of the pyramid. Exactly. Right? So yeah. we're all aiming at the same thing. So this makes it uh, much more harmonious and uh, much, more, uh, much more easier, um, uh, sorry, easier to, to, uh, to come together. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I have a quiz. Let's let's take a I don't want to say take a break, but <laughs> let's <laughs> let's take a pause for a moment and talk about Midori. I have a Midori quiz. Now I've got a choice of music that I can play in the background. I, I can play the second movement of the Mendelssohn violin concerto, or we can go back and do that beginning again. I also have the Dvorak and uh the uh Carl Maria von Weber, who is a Mozart cousin, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and we can talk about all that later. But um, l- let's do the second movement, yeah, maybe, the Mendelssohn, yeah, because idea. the reason that this is might be interesting to some folks, especially if they're a fan of um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, <laughs> is this melody that we're going to hear in a second is very similar to uh, one of the melodies that Webber used in um, Jesus Christ Superstar, right? Yeah. I don't know no. how to love Yeah, I know. Him. I'm conducting that this summer, and I've been thinking about them. In <laughs> oh, the really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I want to. I want to talk about that. Okay. It's a, it's one of my favorite musicals, by the way. Yeah. Let's just listen to this from Melody for a second. Love him. <laughs> I know it's the same. <laughs> yeah. Some of it, some of the stuff that he's borrowed, shall we say, is in the same key. Even you know, yeah. he doesn't. It's cut and paste. Yeah. Well, this one is in the same key, particularly. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, let, let's move on with the quiz. So we know her as Midori, just the one name. What is her surname? Is it Sato? Is it Goto, or Goto, or is it that she doesn't have a surname? Now. You can. It's just you, Elaine. I so know, but you, I don't know anything about. <laughs> I, I know. I know her playing. I know her. I mean, I. But we don't know well, each other is, that well. Uh, Sato. This is how we get to know each okay. other, uh, or how we get to know Midori a little better. Okay. You and I know each other. Yeah. All right. Uh, your answer is not working. <laughs> no, usually they don't. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Okay, the soundboard's not working. Anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to my best attempt at imitating the soundboard. Okay. So you said Sato. Yeah. The answer is eh. Uh. <laughs> it was actually Goto. Okay. Why did she drop Goto from her stage name? Why did she drop that name? Is it because she was a huge Madonna fan and she wanted to have a single name? Was it because her parents got divorced? Or is it because newspapers kept misspelling her name? A, B, or C? Let's go with C. Eh. Oh, my God. <laughs> The actual answer is her parents got divorced when okay. she was 12 years old. Now, wait a second. Can I call Merwin? <laughs> <laughs> call up your aunt, your uh, your helper there yeah, exactly. for the quiz. What did Midori's mother do for a living? Was she a professional violinist? Was she a successful engineer? Or was she a regional politician? A, B, or C? These are hard, right? If you don't know well, yeah, I mean, the, the personal background of Midori. Can I have a Mendelssohn quiz? No, I, can. <laughs> uh, I, I know she was a violinist. Yes, you got it right. <sighs> Wonderful. You're one for two, or one for three, pardon yeah, me. She was a professional violinist. She was the first teacher of Midori and steered her career when she was very young. How old was Midori when she made her debut in public? Was she six? Was she nine? Or was she 11? A, B, or C? I would say six. Yeah, she was six years old when she played one of the Paganini Caprices in Japan. 
she had actually been studying already for three years. Mm. So she started studying when she was three years old. Her mother got her a little tiny violin, wow. you know, that she could I, play on. At three, that would be a 64th. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. yeah, 64th. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, she was 11 when she made her professional debut with the New York Phil and Zubin Mehta, right? Okay. In 1986, she became world famous for what? Is it that she was emancipated from her parents? Is it that she played three violins on the stage? Or is it that she performed with Elton John? A, B, or C? Wow, that's a, that's a tough one. Well, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you a clue here. She did something amazing that you don't normally see on the stage, and it led to a headline in the New York Times the next day. It well, says, okay, well, I'll go with B then. <laughs> the <laughs> answer I mean, is B, like, yes. <laughs> You don't yes. go to stay on stage and say, I'm, I'm splitting from my phone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The headline was Girl 14 Conquers Tanglewood with Three Violins. She was playing a concert of uh, Leonard Bernstein's Serenade. Oh, wow. And Bernstein was conducting, and she broke a string. Oh. She broke the E string on her violin, so she immediately got the violin from the concertmaster. She broke the E string on that. That was a Stradivarius. Then she went to the associate concertmaster who had a Guarnieri who handed it up on stage, and she finished it with that. Wow. So she, she played three violins. And that's not an easy piece. No. Like that. Yeah. No. So watch out if those strings break during the Mendelssohn, right? I'm just going to keep a bunch of strings in my pocket. <laughs> keep extra <laughs> strings. And, and you have to practice, you know, stringing the instrument really fast. Exactly. Okay. What was the repertoire on her very first solo album? Was it Paganini Caprices? Was it Bach Partitas? Or was it Beethoven Sonatas? A, B, or C? Uh, Paganini. Paganini is correct. Yes. You got that one right. Hey. Okay. She has 22 albums to her credit. The most recent one just came out this past November with pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet. And what was the repertoire on that recording? Was it Beethoven, Bach, or Mozart? Wow, good question. Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, right? Yeah. Uh, Bach? Uh, it was Beethoven, actually. I, oh, you she didn't is do played that. <laughs> <laughs> the Beethoven Sonatas, okay? Okay. Uh, Midori's Carnegie Hall debut came on her 18th birthday. What did she play? What piece of music was it? Was it Prokofiev's Violin Concerto Number no. 2? Was it Bartok's Violin Concerto Number no. 2? Or was it the piece we're listening to right now, the Mendelssohn? Violin Concerto. Oh, yeah, I said it's the Mendelssohn. Actually, eh, it's oh, no. the Bartok. She made her recital debut there the following year. Wow. Played a lot of stuff. But she, yeah, actually played the Bartok Concerto wow. as her Carnegie Hall debut, right? Okay. So she's uh, she's got some oomph behind her, as, yeah. as we say. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Okay, what did Midori briefly consider as an alternative career? having studied for it at NYU, at New York University. Is it a career counselor? Is it a social worker or a child psychologist? Which of those three would Midori be if she didn't play the violin? Mm, a, you, yeah. B, or C? Can career, career counselor, yeah. uh -huh. social worker, uh -huh. or child psychologist? Hmm. I go with C. You are correct. Okay. Yay. Yeah, and that was That's the last my... question, right? <laughs> one more. <laughs> oh. <laughs> one more. What does Midori call one of the most beautiful pieces ever written? Is it the Brahms Concerto, the Tchaikovsky Concerto, or the Mendelssohn Concerto? 
one of the most beautiful pieces ever written. I hope it's Mendelssohn. <laughs> it is Mendelssohn, yes. <laughs> we're playing it. <laughs> Indeed. And it Oof. really is. This is a particularly beautiful part here in the second movement. And again, you know, there's so much opportunity for the violinist to show what they can do with this concerto mm. and everything that they have to play in that concerto. That's Absolutely. wonderful. Well, I, you know, I want to move on because I know that the Symphony Number no. 7 by Antonin Dvorak is one of your favorites. Absolutely. And you've got a lot to tell us about Dvorak. Now, most people know Dvorak in terms of like the Symphony Number no. 9, the New World Symphony, especially that yes. Largo moment, yeah. uh, movement, and um, other pieces like his Slavonic dances, which were inspired by Brahms, you know, his mentor, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of pieces that we know of Dvorak, but I wouldn't necessarily put the Symphony Number no. 7 on that list. Mm-hmm. However, for people that listen to all of Dvorak's music, that's a real standout, the yeah. Symphony Number no. 7. I wonder if you can tell us about that. Give us a little, you know, a little prep for yeah. listening to it this weekend. It's the one that's not like the rest. I yeah. mean, in, yeah. in his repertoire, it's like, oh, really? So I I told you earlier in our, in our little chat here that... Uh, there was a, a relationship between uh, having writer's block a little bit, yeah. which uh, two people you never think of writer's block is Mendelssohn and Dvorak. I mean, Brahms used to say that most great composers would find their principal themes of their music in, uh, in Dvorak's garbage bin. Because <laughs> <laughs> what he's not keeping, you can take, and it's already better than what you'd think. You yeah. know? So, you know, it just, it, it flew like the flow of his music was incredible. And then he, and, and that brings us about, uh, I don't know, 40 years after, like, uh, or the uh, 40, 50 years. It's in uh, 1884. He, he starts writing this, uh, the symphony. Yeah, right away, again, right away, a D minor symphony, something mm-hmm. deep. And he wants to have something that's a little darker than what he's written before also. I mean, if you don't know a lot of music by Dvorak, like, you know, like a chamber music thing, it's really worth digging into that a little bit more because he's an amazing composer. For some reason, the name doesn't resound as much as Bach or as Beethoven. Yeah. But Dvorak is, uh, and, and in America, is very important too, right? Because he, he was one of the first uh, director of the conservatory, well, the, the defunct <laughs> conservatory in New York at the time, right? Uh, but it was very, very important. And he's, uh, and his New World Symphony, of course, is out of the, the top uh, 10 arcs. It's always number one, right? Well, you conducted it not that long That's, ago yeah. with the Toledo and, Symphony. And it's it's one of the, I mean, it's not one, it's the most popular symphony, I mean, that, yeah. that, that people know. So it's, uh, he did write the greatest, it's in his Slavonic dances, there's always one, it's always in a movie or something, I mean, that's very important. But this piece, he started, and then <clears throat> he had a lot of things happen in, in his life. His mother died, actually. Mm. And he was, uh, he was, he had this sadness that he'd never really had in his life. It was kind of happy, not happy go, you know, how do you say in English? Happy go lucky. Happy go lucky, yeah. Uh, so that year, before that happened, he, he heard the premiere of uh, uh, Brahms' Third Symphony. Uh, uh, not the premiere, but he heard Brahms' Third Symphony. And uh, he was really taken by it. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, the Brahms symphonies are something else, right? And for him, Brahms was the, the master of all masters. And that was, because they're very different, right? Dvorak is all about tunes, is all about uh, effervescence, 
of ideas, like a little bit like Tchaikovsky, let's say. Yeah. You know, there's always something, right? Oh, this melody, then another melody, then another melody. In English, you'd say, like, the guy could write a tune, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Dvorak is more like, uh, sorry, Brahms more like Beethoven's. Like, let's take as least material as possible and develop it. It's like the craftsmanship of, of a tune that, that, that you would write, which is, you know, that's why people like musician, a musician's musician, right? The Beethoven, uh, Brahms, Mahler, those people who really, they develop and they have the craftsmanship of writing music, right? And at the same time, it's so beautiful that uh, anybody in the public absolutely loves it, right? It's the music of love, you know, Brahms, when you listen to it. <laughs> so anyway, so Dvorak, I wanted to go a little deeper like that, and it was out of character for him a little bit. So it took him two years to write that piece, yeah. which is very, uh, I mean, you know, you think a big symphony like that's kind of normal, you know, but for him, it's very uncharacteristic. So uh, this is this piece took him a long time, and he wrote, rewrote. There's a bunch of versions of it, and like in all Dvorak symphony, the numbering of the symphony is all wrong. The symphony number two is actually the seventh. Yeah. Yeah, the one, <laughs> the nine is five. Anyway, it's a... But now we know this as the D minor symphony number seven, right? So that was a really, really important thing for him. And for me, I it's it's the one that actually has the most like uh, reworking counterpoint and the, mm. the craftsmanship, you know. And it, I mean, Dvorak is an incredible composer. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he he's, uh, he does have great craftsmanship. But this one sounds uh, well. Let's say that in the in the classical world. Like uh, between us, we call it uh, Brahms' Fifth Symphony. Yeah. <laughs> a, like Brahms' first symphony is actually Beethoven's tenth. Yeah, right? exactly. So, so for me, it's very important because it's the continuity of the lineage of the great German tradition. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, there, and there's a connection. They're all interconnected, and you have to think all these geniuses of German music—they're all within eighty years of each other, right? And not even like seventy years of each other. So, Dvorak yeah. being. One of the last and the last of those before we go into the Bohemian, because he's also he's not German, right? So it's it's the gateway to to Mahler, the Bohemian, uh, like not, not in the Bohemian in the sense of being a Bohemian, but yeah. in the country that does country, not exist yeah. anymore where Mahler was born. So you go from Germany and to Austria, because Austria is very different, right? It's more like Austro-Hungarian kind of tradition. And from there, you know, you get the, the from Prague and Czechoslovakia at the time, it was called like that. And then you come back. So all it's a new world. It's more folkloric, right? Yeah. And there's lots. And, and Dvorak, it's all folklore everywhere, right? The music and... And, and that's why in his Ninth Symphony, in the New World Symphony, we came to America. First thing he said, I need to know the folk music of your country. Right. And that's why that second movement is so popular because it's a, it's a spiritual, right? So, and uh, it's actually, no, sorry, this uh, second movement is a native Indian uh, tune. <laughs> yes. That is mixed with a spiritual. There's the two tunes in that movement. But the, this this symphony, he, he was able to put all of his uh, effervescence of 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 folk music inspiration with a development a la Brahms, and to put a bit more French, <laughs> more Brahms, and, and to put the two together. And that's why it took him so much time. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting when you learn how long it took to compose the piece and, and what went into mm -hmm. it and all the different versions and what have you. Because when you listen to this symphony, I think it's unlike anything else. You know, you talk about the folk music influence mm -hmm. Uh, pieces of Dvorak, I think it's unlike other pieces in his repertoire. 
And, you know, the symphony is, what, 40 minutes long or yep. something like that? I listened to it in its entirety the other day, and it just flew by because mm-hmm. of those melodies that catch your ear. It's a very easy listen, but at the same time, it's very thought-provoking because it has its darkness. It has a real – it has some meat on its bones, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's just a wonderful recording, a wonderful symphony. I do have uh, an excerpt that I want to play, and this is probably the most folk-like part of the yeah. Symphony Number no. Seven, the, the third movement scherzo. Okay. Yeah, I've got it here for you. Let me play that. Now, you could, like, analyze that, and it's so rich and so full, but also very simple. And I think that sometimes genius composers, the composers that really know what they're doing, they make great art out of what is seemingly simple stuff, mm-hmm. right? You hear those melodies, you hear Dvorak, and you think, oh, that kind of reminds me of the Slavonic dances, or it reminds me of, you know, the lighter music that Dvorak wrote. But at the same time, it has like this underpinning that's very, very visceral, you know, it engages you. One of the most difficult symphonies to play and to conduct, actually. Yeah. Why is that? Exactly what you said. I mean, we have to make that everything that's visceral, everything that's like really uh, complicated in it Hmm. must not sound complicated. Uh (laughs) So we have to go through all of it, clean everything, you know, like take the, how do you say the SOS, what's it called? Those, uh, the brush when you clean. Uh, the oh yeah, the scrubbing pads the scrubbing like SOS pad, yeah, pads. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to make a promo, but I thought you were talking about Morse code there for a second. <laughs> no, no, you that, wanted to run out of the room yeah, and no, get away no, from no, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> like the scrubbing pad, and you have to like go and everything, you know, and just uh, and you know finesse everything in there. So when after that, when you're done with that, then you can just sing. You can just, but you cannot just pick it up and sing it. Yeah. I mean, you can do that with the Ninth Symphony. You can, well, kind of. There's never a piece you can just do that, but you can do that with some work a little bit more. This one is a kind of almost the epitome of the, of having to go deeply into each of the movements, and it has like orchestral excerpts for everybody. And it, it's like if you have a second oboe um, audition, you always put the beginning of the second movement, mm. and it's something people don't even notice when they listen. But it's like it's 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 yeah. so difficult yeah. because it's slow and it's soft, and it's a you know it's you a, can it's very sense that that yeah. level of complexity, but yeah. it does you know basically at heart it's a folk song tune. Yeah, but our job again coming back to translating, our job is that people don't have to work so hard when they listen to it in the concert hall because we we've we fixed all the you know we bring we try to bring them as many solutions as pro, uh, as possible so they don't you know they they finish their day they come they can sit there and have an experience and not going like oh they're working really hard yeah uh, if somebody comes to a concert and and feel more what we're doing than what the composer's intent was then then we've we failed you know so yeah. we're really trying to work super hard to make an experience uh, that is only Dvorak's music and not us working really hard at it yeah i i think that even if this was the only thing he had written in his entire career that he would still be a famous name in classical music circles i mean where would you put Dvorak in relation to some of the other great names you've mentioned like Brahms and Beethoven and 
you know, what have you, composers that, oh, that span a hundred <laughs> years or so. Okay, you want to put me in tears? I mean, it's a, <laughs> not, not tears, but tears. <laughs> um, well, uh, oh boy, I mean, right, like top, the the top of the tier that's just after the you know, Triumvir, you know, like uh, Beethoven, Bach, you know, mm-hmm. Brahms, like the three Bs and right. uh, all those, but just like, and then after that, you know, and it depends what you like also, right? I mean, you know, because some people say, no, no, for me, it's Mozart all day, you know? Right. And I understand that too. And some people, it's Mendelssohn, but he's, he's really up there with them. I mean, the thing is that, uh, how could I say this? This question of name recognition sometimes that mm. not as much as the other, like you will hear probably more. Dvorak in your lifetime, then you think you're actually dead because he's everywhere. It's in the, you know, yeah. like uh, the the humoresque uh, and the the dancers. Exactly. Yeah, from from the time you're a kid. A lot of people don't even realize. They think it was like a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon exactly. or something, and they exactly. don't realize it was Dvorak. Yeah, he's I, basically his music is everywhere, and uh, for me, it's very important and important. Like Mendelssohn, he came to an, a well, Mendelssohn didn't. Germany, but when he came to America to start a new school, they they went and they got him. They said, "We need the best of the best in Europe to start our uh, our uh, tradition here." And it was in New yeah. York, and they went to get him. They couldn't get everybody, right? They couldn't. They could have asked anybody, but they asked him. So that's a little bit. It gives you an idea of the stature of the of the artist, right? And and he really tried. He stayed three years, and he really made a difference. You know. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because sometimes you need somebody from somewhere else to point at what you have that's exceptional where you live. Uh, <laughs> and that's what he did. He yeah. pointed at the folk music. He pointed all the classical aficionado and composers and, and people who encourage classical music. He pointed them towards the folk music and the, uh, uh, of, of their own country. So do, it's you, do you think that that opened up doors then for other composers oh, to follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't often talk about the influence that specific composers or performers have had on the culture, on on, on classical music as a whole, mm-hmm. but this is a wonderful opportunity to, to kind of dive into that a little bit. Now that I've got you alone, <laughs> I'm not hitting my soundboard. In yeah. fact, it's not working on one half of it, so. Sometimes that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> as, as we're finding out. I'm just happy I got six answers in the quiz. So I can, yeah. Because yeah, I was going, now, if I, if I have less than five, I don't win and I'm alone. You can say you win. <laughs> I'm going to, here. <laughs> no, you put all of them at once now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Well, this is a wonderful uh, concert, a wonderful opportunity to hear not only Midori, who mm. is like one of the greats of of all time, yep. playing one of the greats, yep. violin concertos of all time, and the Symphony Number no. Seven of Dvorak, which we've been talking about. We don't hear that program by orchestras all that often. True. Great opportunity to see that. Uh, you are starting the concert with the overture to Der Freischütz, which is an opera. Der Freischütz means the free shooter. Mm. It's kind of a, a dark and scary and gothic kind of you know story that goes on there. But the music is really interesting uh, by Carl Maria von Weber, who, as we mentioned earlier, is a, actually a cousin by marriage of yeah. Wolfgang Mozart. Yeah, of Constance Weber. Yeah, Constance yeah. Weber. It's not the, the reason why I chose him on the program. Again, <laughs> That's a, a little classical tidbit I was sliding <laughs> yeah. in there. 
We're we're talking about you know well you were talking about the those people be, being uh, influential you mm. know like uh, what do they bring in uh, the reason you know Dvorak coming to America and also Mendelssohn the influence in his community well probably the biggest influence of the three composers on the program is Weber. Really? Uh, yeah, and we always go, ah, first of all, who's that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And second, that was my reaction yeah, when, yeah. <laughs> when you said that. <laughs> and second, like, what's the, what, Frey Schutt, what, what's the title of that? <laughs> and, you know, we never hear that one. This, the, uh, and we're talking about very early. We're talking about, you know, in 1821, like Beethoven is still mm. around and going strong. And, and this guy comes out and he writes, what is, the first romantic German romantic opera. So this is the opera that inspired all of Wagner mm. and then Strauss. And then, so it's the genesis. Is that what you say? Genesis. genesis. Yeah. It's the genesis of all the romantic operas, all this big romantic tradition. People say, well, Wagner more important, you know, wow, changed the world. Well, Wagner, he, he, uh, he revered the Feischutz. Mm. For him, that's like, and and not just the music in the overture, but there's some really like spooky and scary music in yeah. fact, and the orchestration, and I, you don't know where it came from. It's like it's like Symphonie Fantastique, right? And also in the 1820s, right? That why, how did he come up with that? I mean, there was some little spike of creation here and there in Europe, and well, probably all over the world in different kind of cultures. But in what interests us today, like classical Western classical music, this is a very important like. This is the beginning of the German opera. Wow. I mean, for sure, it's not Fidelio. I mean, <laughs> it's a, but it's a, which is a Beethoven opera. Right. That. But, it, you know, we know Beethoven, greatest composer, my, my number one, but not an opera composer. But um, a lot of overtures, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, amazing. But the Freischutz, and, and it's no, it's no mystery why there's so much horn in all of Wagner's operas and music or Strauss. The Freischutz starts with the horn quartet, oh, the overture, yeah. and because why? Because it's a hunter, because yeah. it's hunting music, right? So it's all you know, folk tunes again, but transposed in the mind of a genius, and going in. And when it comes out, it becomes those horn melodies, and and the way it's uh, two sets of horns, the low, the 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 horns in one tonality, not low and high, but two in one tonality, two in another tonality, which also will be uh, the way Brahms writes music after that. So this is a very, very influential piece of music. And I, I remember when I was in school, it was like drilled into us that piece. It was like, this is influential. We play with the orchestra all the time. And we, and it's not something that's done so often. I mean, you know, you don't see it on yeah. the concert stage so much these days, uh, Freischutz Overture. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of... I don't you know. don't see the opera hardly no, at all, that's at true. least not this side of the ocean. True, yeah. yeah. But this is a very, very influential piece of music. And it has a... If you listen to it and you you know what you know now, you're thinking, okay, this is the the piece of music that influenced when you listen to the 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 ring cycle or something like yeah. that. This is what started it. Like Wagner would always go back to this opera and go like, wow, and, he, and a list that they, the, uh, all people wrote um, paraphrases, like Liszt would write paraphrases for piano, like a big set of variation on mm. the Freischel, on yeah. music by Karl Maria von Weber. Hindemith, even after that, is one of his greatest pieces, is Symphonic Metamorphosis on themes by Karl Maria von Weber. That's so, so interesting. I know. It's very, and, and it's not something that, uh, 
that people bring to uh, to the front of the the stage. So often yeah. I thought we have an opportunity here because you know I, it's true that you know Midori play playing in our in our concert stage, people will come and we like we want to hear her, right? But I said, well, this is also an opportunity to to slide in a little something uh, of the music history. It's not very long for just an overture, right? So it's like yeah, ten minutes, you know, but uh, something that people go, oh wow, you know. It gives you a, a taste Absolutely. of the opera itself. It's kind of a little bit of a hit parade. You know, I used to sing that that aria from the opera. And we always feared the the cabaletta at the very end. Each fast fast five and that appears, I believe, in the overture yeah. as well. So you got some of those real melodies in there. I was really struck by what you said about the use of the horn in the opera, because I hadn't considered this before. I mean, the horn was associated with hunting before that, and there were composers who, you know, made an effort to use the horn. They would call a symphony the hunt or, you know, something like that. But um, in the opera and in the overture, the use of the horn really becomes a a a, a synthesis of the the horn call, you know, being the hunting horn, as well as a symphonic instrument, and really kind of blending that and making yeah. it different than anybody had done before. Well, it's not only the hunting; it is the forest. Oh yeah, you know, like when it starts. Sol mi do mi re fa mi re. I knew that we could get you to do some soul. I mean, no, this is such a great tune. The beginning of that. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I sing on pitch. It's okay. So I'm not just, I'm just not a singer. But the, you know, when, when you, when you hear that, it's like, okay, this is not hunting, but this is, it puts you in the, in the context of it. And then yeah. you go and you hear that Rheingold. The beginning of the the ride, and again, the horn puts you in the context of the water that that's mounting, that's coming right. down. So, using the horn as uh, depicting the nature of, of where you're going to be is something that started with that, and that's a because be, before that, yes, it was about hunting. I mean, it was very pictorial. It was like you know, I am picturing people hunting because they're on the horse with the horn, which that's what they did, right? Yeah. Not only in Saint Hubert, but the, in all over Europe. But using the horn as uh, this is an instrument that you use for them, but we will also take it to put to, as a piece of the set of the opera a little bit, you know. So it's not a prop, but it's an integral piece of organic piece of what the music is going to be, what the what the drama is going to be, and that yeah. started there. You've changed my whole perception of the opera, I have to say. <laughs> having sung parts of it and and having heard it over the years. I was never aware of that. See, you know, even I learned something here in, <laughs> on Toledo Symphony Lab. It's great. Well, this is a, a wonderful concert and has been made all the more wonderful just by talking about it and the connections between these pieces today. I've been talking with Alain Trudel, who is the music director of the Toledo Symphony. A little one-on-one that we've had today. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you so much for... Thank uh, you for having me. And thank you for the opportunity of going in, in depth in uh, that repertoire. Yeah. This concert is happening Saturday night at 8 p.m. It's at the Paris Style in the Toledo Museum of Art. The great violinist Midori playing the Mendelssohn Concerto. We're also going to hear the Symphony Number no. 7 by Antony Dvorak and the Overture to the Opera der Freischütz by Karl Maria von Weber. Elaine is conducting. Midori's going to be here live in person playing that wonderful Mendelssohn that we talked about earlier. Again, thank you, Elaine, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much.
This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org slash lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts. Don't forget to check out all the upcoming events at the Symphony by visiting their website at toledosymphony.com and their various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find the TSO streaming platform online at stream.artstoledo.com. You can also call up the box office if you want tickets to see Midori hear this wonderful music. That is at 419-246-8000. My thanks once again to music director Elaine Trudeau. I'm Brad Cresswell. You've been listening to Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.